This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. 981,000 people watched the Mother of All Talk Shows in the last seven days. You can count our ratings, unlike the ratings of our rivals who are down in the foothills and we're not even sure if the foothill numbers are correct. But ours are, of course, countable by friends and foes. 981,000. If you were among those in the last seven days, thank you. And don't make me read out a six-figure number again. Next week, it has to be a seven-figure number, okay? That means 19,000 of you have got to bring one other viewer. That's all. That's all I'm asking. We're running a big, big poll this evening. Which NATO leader was more responsible for the invasion of Iraq? Of course, both were but was one more responsible than the other. It's A, George W. Bush, B, Tony Blair. You can vote on my Twitter feed, on my YouTube, on my Telegram channel, t.me forward slash George Galloway, or on the YouTube community poll. 12,729 people have already voted, and the show has just begun. Make sure you get your vote in. Actually, I'm conflicted on that. Uh, The president's brain being missing, Tony Blair, Oxford educated at our expense, functioned as the president's brain. That must uh, give him a shout for being the more responsible, because if he was the brain, what was George W. Bush? Well, I'll let you work out that anatomical detail for yourselves. The simian swagger of Bush could certainly not have sold the war anything like as popularly in some quarters as Tony Blair, the smooth-tongued snake oil salesman, managed to do. After all, once you can fake the sincerity, the rest is easy. That's always been his maxim. He became the United States ambassador to the world in that period, in the run-up to the war, almost exactly 20 years ago. We're running this poll, and I'm making these remarks because we are preparing some very special content for you on the anniversary of the Iraq invasion, an invasion and occupation, the consequences of which are still reverberating, not just throughout Iraq, not just throughout the region, but throughout the entire world, even in our own streets. Mercifully, not for some time, but who would bet against those implications reverberating once again in the streets of London? But on the streets of Lahore, uh, there is blood running in the streets. One young 
PTI party worker Bilal Ali has already been martyred. Others have been severely beaten and wounded. Some may not survive the night. The proximate reason is the election, a general election, for all of the provincial assembly seats in the crucial, critical state of Punjab, which is the home state of Imran Khan and the biggest of the many national vote banks that his party, the PTI, hold. These by-elections for every single seat are likely to lead to a landslide victory for Imran Khan, who runs at around 75 to 80 percent in every opinion poll taken by any credible organization, so much so that opinion polls are now banned in Pakistan. The Prime Minister Imran Khan is not allowed to appear on television, any television. He has been holed up under house arrest since being shot in the leg in an attempted assassination attempt, which we covered widely here on the mother of all talk shows. But that was not enough. Fearing a landslide Punjab victory for Imran Khan, the regime, the imported puppet regime installed by the United States of America, the State Department, the ambassador to Islamabad, and of course, ultimately, the White House of Joe Biden itself has decided that Imran Khan must not live. Because if he lives, not only will he sweep the boards in any free and fair democratic election, but that he might win enough of a majority, three quarters, to fundamentally alter the Pakistan constitution, a constitution which very badly needs to be fundamentally altered. And then, of course, there's the possibility that he will seek to hold to account all those exiled politicians who had run away from Pakistan, were living in exile on their ill-gotten gains looted from the poor people of Pakistan. The government that was installed by the US looked like, read like, the front page of the police gazette, like a wanted poster. The prime minister himself was wanted for gigantic financial malfeasance, but he's still the so-called prime minister because the US could not find anybody else to install instead of the popular leader Imran Khan. And so the proximate cause of tonight's events is an election. But the real cause is the need to rid themselves of this turbulent priest, Imran Khan. As I've said many times before, I'm not his party man. I have not been traditionally a supporter of the PTI, but I am a supporter of justice and I am a supporter of democracy indeed. I have been decorated with the highest civil award in Pakistan for my work in the 1980s for the movement for the restoration of democracy in that country. So I didn't face General Ziaul Haq working underground with the MRD in order to sell the idea 
of democracy to the Americans just because Imran Khan rather than Benazir Bhutto was this time the victim. The victim stands to be arrested, you may say. He'll only be taken to prison, you may say. But if you said that, you'd be a fool. Because if Imran Khan disappears behind bars in the dungeons of the puppet government in Islamabad, you will never see him again. And that would be a catastrophe, not just for Imran Khan, for his family, for the three quarters of the people of Pakistan who support him. It would be a catastrophe for the region. It would be a catastrophe for the world. Pakistan is a gigantic country with hundreds of millions of people in it and with a fleet of nuclear weapons. Instability, turmoil, chaos, bloodshed, civil war in Pakistan would be a clear and present danger to the world. And I say to the British government, including to Zach Goldsmith, the former brother-in-law of Imran Khan, who's a minister in the British Foreign Office, you'd better pull your finger out and use your influence and, yes, power in Pakistan to bring this situation under control, to save the life of Imran Khan, not just because that's right in itself, but because the consequences of Imran Khan being killed in jail in Pakistan are too awful to contemplate for all of us. Matt Hancock and Boris Johnson and the chief lieutenants of the medical industrial complex who have been revealed, unveiled by the heroic publishing effort of the Daily Telegraph, publishing stolen goods, publishing stolen documents in the public interest, just like Julian Assange is facing extradition to the United States and 174 years in a supermax prison for doing. Why don't you make that connection, Mr. Daily Telegraph? Nonetheless, I commend you. You and Isabel Oakshot, I say to Richard Tice again, don't give that woman your telephone. I have reason to caution you even before Matt Hancock found out that while she was ghostwriting his book, she was going through his WhatsApp messages and has now plastered them across the front page of the newspapers. And it's a good thing that she did because what she has done is reveal the chaos and the mendacity of the leaders of the British government when it came to the lockdowns from 2020 onwards. These lockdowns were judged by more than 20,000 voters on here just last Sunday to have been a disaster, to have been unnecessary, to have been badly implemented, implemented in entirely the wrong way. But we are still suffering the after effects of the British government's disastrous handling of the pandemic, of the lockdowns and all that came from them. Our economy may never recover. Millions, many millions of British people may never recover their mental health or their physical health that was sacrificed at the altar of a gigantic scare story to scare the pants off 
the British public. Not my words, the words of the then Health Secretary, Matt Hancock. Pretty soon he's going to wish he was back in that jungle because he's tied to a tree now and all of his enemies are coming towards him. So desperate is the United States of America to avoid the consequences of Seymour Hersh's devastating journalistic expose of the American and Norwegian role in the blowing up of Germany's vital national infrastructure, costing well over 20 billion euros and polluting the sea and the atmosphere with methane forever in a gigantic, incredible explosion is now being blamed on a group of Ukrainians on a yacht. It was 200 meters under the sea. It was encased in two-inch thick concrete. It would have taken a major, significant military, national power to blow up that pipeline. To blame it on a Ukrainian oligarch on a sailing boat with amateur divers is simply preposterous. And the fact that the Americans expect you to believe it, the fact that the government of Germany appears to believe it, is almost beyond comprehension. Luckily, it's being laughed loudly, ribaldly around the world out of court. The German government will not be able to sell to their public opinion that this was some kind of freelance affair and for which they will take some unnamed and definitely petty sanction against the government of Ukraine, which, of course, if it was a Ukrainian oligarch what done it, then Zelensky had to know about it and facilitate it. But the German government will not be able to persuade their public that that's what happened. And the rest of the European public is rapidly opening its eyes on the whole Ukraine affair. As they shiver in this winter, we're here in Britain and not far from me, we are expecting 15 inches of snow, cannot afford to keep our houses warm, are paying three, sometimes four times the amount for heating as we were doing last year at this time. Our economy sinking, our inflation rate rocketing, our industries closing, hundreds of thousands of British businesses, hundreds of thousands, some 620,000 British businesses alone will close this year as a result of this economic crisis brought on overwhelming by the foolish leaders that rule our countries and who have jumped over a cliff at the behest of an imbecile in the White House of America, a man who doesn't even know he is the president of the United States of America. As an act of self-harm, as an act of national suicide, it's pretty difficult to beat in all the history of humanity. And the public are no longer wearing it. If you don't believe me, take a collection can out in the street for the war effort in Ukraine. Rattle your tin in the street, in the shopping mall, 
in your workplace for more weapons for Ukraine. Your tin will not rattle much because not much will be put in it. The twibbons are down. The ribbons are down. The lights on the public buildings are down. The people have woken up. The politicians, not yet. But that is bound to follow. Because all of them face election at one point or another in this election cycle. And as Dr. Johnson said, the knowledge that one is to be hanged in the morning concentrates the mind wonderfully. And you have the ability to hang all of these leaders, metaphorically, this year, next year, or the year after that. When the public move, they vote with their feet. And when they're voting with their feet, believe me, their leaders have to hear them. We'll be talking about all of these things and more. So fasten your seatbelt. It's the mother of all talk. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Don't forget to vote on the poll. Which NATO leader was more responsible for the invasion of Iraq. A. George W. Bush on Twitter, 66%. B. Tony Blair on Twitter, 34%. On YouTube, George Bush, 75%. Tony Blair, 25%. On Telegram, George Bush, 71%. Tony Blair, 29%. And on YouTube, community poll, Bush, 81%. Blair, 19%. How apposite that I introduce as my first guest, a man that I first met in the great world global upheaval that took place to try and stop the disaster of Bush and Blair's invasion and subsequent occupation of Iraq. He was a hero then. He's a hero now. He's a former Marine intelligence officer. Not many people know more about war than him which is why they've tried so hard to keep him off as many platforms as possible. But he'll always be welcome here on the mother of all talk shows. He is, of course, the one and only Scott Ritter. Scott, thanks for joining us. Let me start with this Nord Stream nonsense. Uh, the United States wants us to believe a, a, a group of chaps in a yacht uh, sailed over it, uh, dived over the side and blew up a 20 billion euro a pipeline. What say you? 
I say that's one of the most absurd things I've ever heard. Um, I had the uh, the opportunity to listen to uh, Seymour Hirsch uh, as he was informed of this and his live response. And after he stopped laughing and saying, oh, my God, he said he couldn't believe that this was indeed uh, the tactic being taken by the United States. This is absurd in the extreme. It's actually going to backfire because, you know, you when you put up forward a cover story that's composed of lies, uh, once those lies begin to be investigated, you you just blow more holes in it and you make the original reporting of Seymour Hirsch resonate all that all the more. Yes, of course, uh, the plumbers uh, who uh, who broke into the Watergate building, uh, if, that, if they'd come clean ab- about that uh, from the start, Richard Nixon would have served out his term. It's the cover-up that's worst, isn't it? Absolutely, especially a stupid cover-up. Look, the, the CIA, and I've, I've, I've had the opportunity to work with their special activities group uh, in the past, um, you know, things they do aren't supposed to be discovered by the public. But one of the things they do up front when they are supposed to do an operation like this is develop a cover story as the operation unfolds that they can fall back on that is believable. What you don't want to do is after the fact, in a panic, uh, start making stuff up. And that's that's what they've done here. This is um, the mother of all bad cover stories. Yeah, and, uh, it's bound to be because they uh, realize that uh, Seymour Hersh's revelations are gaining traction. Not just that they're gaining traction. Uh, look, for intelligence people, they're pretty stupid. Uh, if you've studied Seymour Hersh's modus operandi in the past, um, you know that he doesn't write one and done. He writes a story, he lets it percolate, and then he receives more information. He writes a follow-on story, then a follow-on story, then a follow-on story. And Seymour Hirsch has said that uh, he has another uh, you know, issue uh, of the Nord Stream saga getting ready to be released, and then there will probably be another one after that. And what happens is, by the time he's done, it's all out there in black and white. The sources have come clean. We now can identify them. It's public knowledge. And it turns out that Seymour Hersh was right all along. I'm going with Seymour Hersh's track record as a, as a journalist on this one, not the CIA's track record of telling the truth. Well, look, this is a good moment to bring in uh, a video question uh, from uh, one of our stalwarts, Ian Puddick. He has a question on this very point. Bear with me, Scott, and we'll play it as a 30-second video. Good evening and greetings to George and greetings to Scott Ritter. Big fan from London. Um, Question about Germany and Nord Stream, please. I know it's been done to death. Um, The Germans have no interest whatsoever in identifying who blew up their critical national infrastructure. Doesn't make any sense to me. The German media, again, have no interest. They do have interest in smearing Cyhorsch, the, Cyhorsch, the, the legendary journalist, and also reference the Minsk agreement. Germany and France, I know the story, they deliberately misled and lied to Russia to deceive them to buy time for, for Ukraine to arm. But why? What benefit was it to Germany in doing that? How did they gain? It just, does, just doesn't make sense. I'd love to hear your thoughts, both of you. Take care. Bye-bye. It doesn't uh, make well, sense to a lot of people, Scott. Uh, do you think the, the German government uh, knew that this was going to happen? They must know now what did happen. Why are they so supine in the face of the facts? First of all, George, I have to just applaud you on your use of the English language. Um, 
bravo. Um, <laughs> supine. I'm going to steal that word. Uh, the Look, one only has to take a, a look at Ola Schultz's face when he was in the White House uh, with Joe Biden on February 7th of 2022, when Joe Biden said straight up, I'm going to take out the Nord Stream pipeline. The look of abject shock and terror on the face. Schultz knew about this. He, he was told by the president right there, I'm taking out your pipeline. Um, this wasn't a surprise. Now, who is Schultz? What is the political parties behind them? You know, in Germany, you have the resurgence of a uh, progressive liberal element, the Green Party, etc. That is 110 percent beholden to the United States for their political viability. They've bought into American economic concepts, America's geopolitical vision of how Europe fits in the world. Uh, in Germany, you know, these political and economic elites have totally sold out to the United States. This is why they're silent, because you know now they're confronted with the horror of what they've done, but they're too complicit. They've been they're, they're the ones who have set this thing up. They're the ones who allowed this to happen. So therefore, they're not about allow the truth to come out. There are some elements in Germany and the German parliament who are courageously starting to ask the right questions. And as you indicated earlier, Seymour Hersh's reporting is starting to gain traction. The questions are starting to be seen as very relevant. And the silence on the part of the German government and the German media and other German politicians is damning in terms of, you know, how it indicts them in the, in terms of their complicity complicity in this uh, in, in this what was a terrorist act by the United States. Let's turn to the battlefield itself, Scott. Uh, give us an update on the battle for Bakhmut and its significance. What's likely to happen as a result of it? Well, let nobody be any doubt that Bakhmut is of extreme strategic value. This is. Uh, you know, in a very important uh, city, you know, the Bakhmut Solidar complex of underground salt mines, entrenchments, et cetera, was the logistical and command and control hub of the defensive line that Ukraine had spent eight years building uh, in the in the Donbass uh, region. Uh, Russia has spent since May grinding these defenses down in a very bloody, very violent operation that's taken tens of thousands of lives on both sides, well, on the Ukrainian side, thousands of lives on the Russian side, um, and the Russians are about to win. They're about to break through, take Bakhmut, and as the Ukrainian president said, if Bakhmut falls, because he's now trying to explain why he's poured so many thousands of lives into the defense of this position that's getting ready to capitulate, uh, he says if it falls, the door is wide open for you know Russian exploitation to go on to Kramatorsk, and other, uh, and other Donbass cities, uh, it will basically unfold the Ukrainian defenses. This is a strategic victory, not only in terms of the military aspects of it, but also the political aspects. The, one cannot you know, overestimate the, the, the amount of demoralization that'll take place on the Ukrainian side when Bakhmut falls. This was the strongest position, this was the most you know, heavily defended position, heavily fortified positions, and the Russians just cracked it like a walnut. And um, for the rest of the Ukrainian soldiers out there, they know that that is their future. As this war drags on, the best they can hope for is a death that uh, is similar to the deaths that are taking place in Bakhmut as we speak. We've spoken before about casualties. We spoke after uh, von der Leyen uh, inadvertently, perhaps, 
uh, announced that uh, the Ukrainians had lost 100,000 soldiers. We talked about the ratio of uh, injured to dead, uh, normally two to three uh, for every dead soldier, two to three uh, wounded ones. Uh, we're now talking about 250,000 dead and 250,000 wounded, which wouldn't meet that ratio I just referred to. But even if that was true, half a million dead soldiers in a year is not Second World War casualty figures. It's First World War casualty figures, isn't it? Absolutely. Look, this is, this is a humanitarian tragedy on a scope and scale that has been unimaginable um, in Europe in modern times. Um, I mean, we, we had fooled ourselves, lulled ourselves into believing once the Cold War had ended that uh, the possibility of large-scale ground combat uh, in Europe was over, that uh, Europe was now, uh, to quote Burrell, the garden. Uh, and, and there were no weeds, there were no parasites. It was perfect. Well, that's not the case. But as General Cavoli, he's the American general commands American forces and all allied forces in NATO, said in a presentation to, to a Swedish defense forum in, in, um, in January, what, what's happening, the violence, the scope and scale of the violence is beyond the imagination of anybody in NATO. And this is a very important thing, beyond the imagination. That means that NATO hasn't prepared for this, isn't trained for this, isn't equipped for this, cannot sustain this. Frankly speaking, NATO cannot engage in the kind of fighting that's taking place in Ukraine right now. NATO would be wiped off the face of the earth. Ask the British military, all 70,000 of them. You know, they wouldn't last a week in this kind of combat. Same thing with the Americans. We have more of our troops, but we don't have the ability to sustain them. We have no artillery ammunition in a war that's largely defined by the use of artillery. Um, this this is unimaginable, the level of violence. I, I, I say this over and over again because I'm trying to impart to your audience that this isn't Hollywood film. This isn't a movie. This isn't, you know, minor deaths here and there. This is death on a scope and scale that the world has not witnessed since the Second World War and more likely since the First War. This is trench warfare. This is gruesome. This is horrifying. This is the kind of stuff that if you survive, you don't survive because your brain is going to be forever scarred by what you have witnessed. And it's not just the dead and the wounded. It's the participants. It's not just the combatants. It's the civilians. Tens of millions displaced. Look at what's happened to the landscape of Ukraine. And then ask yourself, was it worth it? Was what the West has done here worth the cost that we've imposed, we've imposed on the Ukrainian people? And I believe the answer isn't just no, but hell no. Yeah, uh, I'm going to say something. I might regret it. Uh, but uh, for the reasons you adumbrated and more, it seems to me that NATO is a busted flush in Ukraine. They cannot up the ante. They know that they cannot send their own soldiers in to fight and die in very significant numbers. We don't have enough of them apart from anything else and apart from the inherent lack of popularity for the war in the public opinion, which I spoke about uh, earlier. They cannot give Ukraine enough weaponry to change the balance on the battlefield and therefore they're just waiting for for the end game uh, is that a wildly controversial thing to say 
or does it square with your analysis? Well, I mean, it might be controversial to the politicians who have invested so much political capital into this failed gambit of supporting a proxy conflict against Russia using Ukraine uh, because they don't want to admit it. Uh, but, you know, this is like the captain of the Titanic uh, failing to acknowledge that they struck an iceberg and water's coming into his ship. He's just saying, go ahead, let's make New York in the morning. Well, you ain't going to make New York. Um, and NATO isn't going to see this conflict through. NATO has lost this conflict. Jan Stoltenberg, the uh, secretary general of NATO, uh, basically acknowledged it in a statement where he said, Ukraine is using 155 millimeter artillery ammunition at a great at a rate greater than we can replenish. They will run out of ammunition this summer and we have no ability to make up for this. And when you run out of ammunition in a war that's defined by artillery, you die. And that's the fact. And so everything you said there, George, spot on accurate. It may be controversial, but, you know, sometimes the truth is controversial. In this case, you're speaking truth. In which case, what is the end game, uh, do you think, Scott? Um, once upon a time, I thought that Russia would take everything east of the Dnipro uh, and uh, be content with, as it were, a buffer uh, territory there. But that would merely allow the western part of Ukraine to become, quite literally over years and years, uh, a bristling armed NATO camp. And I'm not sure now that they are ready to settle for that. No, you're, you're 100% correct. I mean, Vladimir Putin insinuated in his February 21st address that, you know, Russia's goal right now is to, um, you know, create a good social and economic um, life for the people of Russia. That includes Kherson, Zaporizhia, Donetsk, Lugansk, the new Russian territories. And then to secure them by pushing the Ukrainians back to the maximum range of the weapon systems provided by NATO, which is in this case 150 kilometers. That will give you Odessa, Nepopetrovsk, uh, Kharkov. And those are Russian cities that Russia, once they have, will never go back. So not only is Russia going to seize another 30% of Ukraine and absorb it, but then what's left of Ukraine, understand, will not be a rump state. Russia talks about denazification, and I have spoken to several. Uh, figures who've made it clear what denazification is. Denazification means that a military government will be put in to replace the Zelensky government, and all people who have been contaminated by the odious ideology of Banderism, uh, these neo-Nazis, these white supremacists, will be arrested, will be prosecuted. There will be a Nuremberg-like reckoning to the Nazis and the people who facilitated this, and there will be punishment. Uh, Russia doesn't have the death penalty, so they will be given long sentences. And those who aren't sent to jail will be re-educated, and there will be a complete transformation of Ukrainian society. And this will take years because Russia cannot tolerate, and frankly speaking, Europe should not want to tolerate, a hate-filled, cancerous Ukrainian rump state that only exists to cause trouble for Russia at the expense of Europe. Ukraine, unfortunately, has been given a death sentence. Ukraine, as we know it, will no longer exist. Whatever emerge will be dictated by Russia as part of their terms of unconditional surrender that will be offered to whoever survives this conflict. And lastly, uh, you would have thought logically that an army that was run out of Afghanistan would not seek to fight Russia next. And an army that has been defeated by Russia in Ukraine would not seek to double down by fighting China and Russia. And yet, 
Looking at the rhetoric, Scott, that seems to be the way they're heading. And people who think logically simply cannot understand this. Are they serious about a conflict with China? You know, the American empire is in a state of collapse. Um, it's not a free fall yet, but it is definitely in a downward trajectory. And so the um, hegemonic powers that be that define you know, the American political and economic elite um, are, are not, as uh, Dylan Thomas said, going gently into the night. They are rage, rage against the dying of the light. They're going to fight this uh, to the bitter end. So there's a lot of rhetoric. Fortunately, uh, the military people, the professionals, are cognizant of the fact that some of this aggressive rhetoric is a one-way trip to hell, that, which resulted in the defeat, the military defeat of the United States. We simply can't defeat China in a non-nuclear conflict. And the military knows this. Every professional in the military knows this. They're going to say certain things, but at the end of the day, they will advise the President of the United States that to sail an American fleet towards Taiwan is to invite the, the, the destruction of the fleet because the fleet is legacy thinking, old World War II, Cold War thinking that doesn't recognize the lethality of modern weaponry, these long-range, medium-range, precision-guided hypersonic missiles that cannot be shot down, that will hit everything they're aimed at, will sink the entire U.S. fleet and everybody in it before it gets near Taiwan. And um, hopefully these guys are telling that to the politicians. Right now, the feeling is that China's bluffing and that if we puff out our chest and we act strong, um, that the Chinese will back down. Well, the Chinese aren't bluffing. The, the, the good news is China's the adult in the room, and they recognize the temper tantrum when they see it, and they're going to let the Americans kick and scream and do what they want. But China, I believe, has made the decision, looking at Ukraine, that they are not going to go to war in Taiwan unless they are pushed, absolutely have to, that they do not want to engage in the kind of destructive activity that's taking place in Ukraine, that if Taiwan is going to be incorporated, they want it to be incorporated intact with people alive, with the industries functioning, and uh, the ability to engage in global economic activity, which is, of course, China's forte. Soldier and scholar, Scott Ritter, thanks for joining us on board the mother of all talk shows. Which NATO leader was more responsible for the invasion of Iraq? A, George W. Bush, B, Tony Blair. You can vote on my Twitter feed, on the YouTube that you're watching now, on my Telegram channel, t.me forward slash George Galloway, or on the YouTube community channel. 15,585 votes have been cast already. Uh, some YouTube comment. Uh, Monte L. says the idea that the U.S. kind of rooted for Germany in the first part of World War II is becoming more and more believable. Let's take a quick break. I hope you're enjoying that War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. I think it's simply phenomenal, and I hope I've done it justice. If you are a follower of mine on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash George Galloway, I am deeply grateful to you. Des is in Birmingham, wants to talk about Ukraine. Des, welcome to the show. Hi there, George. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. Um, great to speak with you, and God bless you for always speaking the truth and, and saying what's right. Um, I think, um, you know, you. I know that, you know, Ukraine is obviously, you know, a massive um, subject 
nowadays and you know the, the the world is at the forefront of everybody's mind and today you know obviously the the uh anniversary of the um iraq war as well and ultimately these wars are supposed to be sustained i think it's quite interesting just to see that you know a lot of the russian weapons have american-made parts within them as well so ultimately america is still profiting from this and ultimately when you look at world war ii as well you know the nazis a lot of their bombing campaigns over the united kingdom would not have been possible had it not been for standard oil and you know american oil at the time so I think that it's interesting just to see how it is that America's profiting from these wars. You know, Vietnam went on for many years as well. Um, and obviously, you know, that was deliberate so that it stopped, you know, China maintaining influence within this around Vietnam because strategically it's in a very important location. And ultimately, you know, the world is a chessboard for the likes of America. They want to go out and they want to get rid of people that don't agree with them and people that agree with them. And just like when you mentioned Imran Khan earlier, for example, um, Imran Khan was very much a unifying factor. Um, you know, within the region, whereas Modi was trying to, you know, divide people ultimately and was being very repressive against Muslims. Um, and ultimately, you know, the West can't have that. So that's why they have to get rid of him. And I think that um, they're just, you know, essentially just going around the world just doing what they want to do. And uh, um, it, it's disgusting. And you know, ultimately, war is supposed no, to be I, I, Yeah, I, I absolutely don't agree with you, Des. I agree with Scott Ritter that the American empire is falling apart. It's not yet in free fall, but it's falling apart and visibly. Uh, it's, uh, it's been hit uh, by uh, several whammies. The blow in Afghanistan has now been followed by this tremendous blow in Ukraine, where the impotence, short of a thermonuclear war, which ends humanity, of course, and it's not clear, as Scott hinted, that the American military would go along with that. Uh, it's uh, a, a, a devastating humiliation in strategic terms, what is now happening in, uh, in Ukraine for the United States. I caution you, as I have done for many years, not to think that the people who run our countries are James Bonds. They really, really are not. They are far more Austin powers than they are James Bond. So all I'm saying is don't overestimate them. Don't think they're master chess players. They're playing checkers. It's the Russians and the Chinese that are playing chess. Peter in Middlesbrough in England. Go ahead, Peter. Hello, George. Nice to talk to you again. I hope you get us lots of Snapchats because uh, you deserve it. I'd li I would like to Thank see you. this channel go, Thank you. go off the air. Uh, like you say, you always keep the fake news and make it right. So anyway, my question Thank to you, you, George, all your wisdom, my friend, is when the uh, refugees would come over legally, they'd come over on uh, the ferry and get, and the trains, and they would hide into the um, into the the, the the trucks. And when they got caught at the other end, they'd have the sandwich and a cup of tea, and they would be sent back. Now, why can't they do that with the same people coming over the sea? They've come from France. They've shut all the passports in the water and their phones. But we know they've come from France. Just put them back on the ferry and send them back. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, that's so blindingly obvious. I'm not sure why not a single political leader has uh, seriously proposed that that happen. They are coming from a safe country, France. Uh, and uh, there is no obligation on the British to allow people to illegally enter in rubber dinghies with no identifying papers 
almost all of them men, almost all of them fighting age men, and 60% of them coming from countries uh, that are uh, by no stretch of the imagination war-torn, devastated countries from which they have at least a legitimate argument that they are fleeing. These are facts that the liberals don't want to contemplate. They prefer, if they can talk about uh, the people who are fleeing from the wars that we ourselves uh, unleashed on various territories around the world, although many of these liberals supported those wars. And uh, I certainly didn't see many of them in the front lines of those of us fighting against those wars. The war against Libya, for example, blew open the doors, blew the bloody doors off in Michael Caine's uh, words. There weren't many of these liberals on my side fighting against the war in Libya. There were rather more on the Iraq war, but not that many on the Afghan war, and virtually none on the Syrian war. And these are the wars that are producing 40% of the people that are trying to cross the channel into Britain. But 60% of them are Albanian. Now, Albania has not had a war since the Second World War, which ended in 1945. Albania is a candidate member of the European Union. Albania is a candidate member of NATO. Therefore, ipso facto, you cannot be a refugee from Albania unless you were going to make the claim that the pro-Western, pro-European, pro-NATO government in Tirana was not the government we think it is. And that would be very embarrassing indeed for the EU and for NATO. The truth is, these migrants are economic migrants. Now, we may want to take some economic migrants. I argue if we are, we should take them from the Commonwealth, where they speak English and have an historic uh, relationship with us and to whom we owe something. Uh, that would be my argument, uh, if we need economic migrants. But we can't have economic migrants pretending to be refugees. And that's what happens when you get into a rubber dinghy, having paid uh, a people trafficker thousands of euros to sail you across, uh, and you throw your uh, passport and phone into the drink. That's a criminal act. And I don't see how someone who is Albanian should not be immediately returned to Albania. We could actually put them on Ryanair. It costs £30 per person to fly from Luton to Tirana. We could actually do Ryanair quite a bit of good business. Peter, thanks for that call. Ivan is in Kent on nuclear weapons. Ivan, welcome to the show. I believe the United States are investing in new storage for nuclear weapons at RAF Lakenheath. So my question is simply, do you know if the United States would be able to use those nuclear weapons without the permission of the United Kingdom government? Absolutely, without a doubt. Uh, in fact, more than that, we could not use our nuclear weapons 
without the permission of the United States government. In fact, it would be technically impossible for us to fire them. So the United States can use its nuclear weapons that it keeps in what are laughingly described as Royal Air Force bases, like Lake and Heath, in England. But we can't even use our own nuclear weapons. I say own in uh, heavily inverted commas. How's that for a vassal relationship, Ivan? Pretty much what I expected to hear, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Now, you're a Scotsman in Kent. I'm very glad to hear. I was uh, filming outside Royal Wooten Bassett, uh, the former yeah. RAF Lynham Air Base, just a day or two ago on my way to speak at the University of Buckingham. Uh, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll be using that footage in the upcoming work that we're doing over the Iraq War anniversary. Ivan, thanks uh, very much for that call. Well, our next guest knows how to deliver a zinger. He doesn't get enough platforms from which to deliver them. He was very popular the last time he was on here on the Mother of All talk shows, and I'm very glad to welcome back Dr. John Campbell, who must be feeling, Dr., uh, somewhat vindicated by the way the uh, current reportage, at least in certain quarters, of the whole lockdown, the whole way in which the government handled all of this last period is beginning to fall apart, it's beginning to tumble, isn't it? Good to see you, George. It's been too long, just over two years, I think, since we talked last time. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, and... Yeah, it's uh, fantastic to see you. And I thought it was right, uh, because I think you have been vindicated. You know, I started off really trusting the, the official narrative. We thought that the government had our best interest at heart. We thought they were actually using the science. We thought they were basing things on scientific decisions, on, on empirical knowledge. And, and it, it looked pretty good. And at, at the beginning... Um, there was nothing really to contradict that official narrative. But as time has gone on, it's become more and more obvious that this official narrative is basically full of holes. The whole pro-vaccine narrative. Now, on YouTube, of course, not allowed to say too much about vaccines, but where was all the talk about natural immunity? Where was all the talk about vitamin D and zinc and promoting health with good diet and losing weight and all the other things that we know that are massively efficacious. Why was all the focus just on interventions that all seem to be remarkably expensive? Why, why was it that alternative therapies that could be useful, again, we're not really even allowed to talk about those, but why weren't they fully investigated? Why didn't the government sponsor clinical trials looking at these alternative therapies until it was basically too late? And why didn't they take into account that the risk-benefit analysis changed dramatically? Thinking about vaccination, the risk of vaccination has been much the same throughout this pandemic. There's certain risks associated with it that we know about. But the danger from the disease went down so dramatically at the time of Omicron. Why did policies not change when that risk-benefit analysis changed? And you're absolutely right. Information is coming out now. So we've got the new exposés, for example, these lockdown files from the Daily Telegraph that are uh, drip, drip, dripping out <laughs> revelations uh, day after day. 
And to be quite honest, the people in charge aren't really coming out of this smelling of roses, George. <laughs> no, <laughs> on the contrary, they're smelling of something far more foul. And, uh, and you know, I know all these people. Uh, I've been up close and personal uh, with them. I never imagined they were James Bonds, but I never thought they were the kind of fools uh, that they seem now uh, to be from at least their WhatsApp messages. There's certainly some good WhatsApp messages, isn't there? Um, the thing that's disappointed me mostly is politicians seem to be reverting to type. So a lot of what the politicians were saying seems to be how they're going to look after their interests how the stories are going to project, how the stories are going to play out. And you could almost say that this sometimes outweighed their thinking about the actual efficacy and the benefit of what was going to happen. And the other thing is, why were they so dependent on particular committees, like the, uh, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Authority, for example, which we now know is over 80% funded by industry? Where was the independent analysis of this? Why were independent academics often ostracised? You know, we've got some absolutely brilliant academics in this country, George. All we've got to do is throw the data at them and they'll, they'll crunch it. You know, people I've been working with, like Norman Fenton, are world-class statisticians. Give them the numbers. He'll run them into his spreadsheet and come out with, with real answers. But we're not allowed the empirical data to work with. Just take one example. The original trials that were done for the Pfizer and the Moderna mRNA vaccines. The original participant level data for that still has not been released. It's not in the public domain yet. Why have they not released that data? That data's there. We believe Pfizer has it. We believe Moderna has it. We believe the FDA in the United States also has it. Well, release it. Norman Fenton can do a spreadsheet analysis on it. We can talk to Asim Mulhotra about it, and then I can make a YouTube video about it. <laughs> We're just not getting the information we want. Why, why is there this lack of transparency? It's been one of the themes that's really emerged from, for me. Let's just have open transparency. Give us the data. We can analyze it, make sense of it, and draw our own conclusions, thank you very much, rather than being forced to accept the official narrative all of the time. Very disappointing, really. Well, this is the point about censorship. As, uh, as explained by that well-known revolutionary, John Stuart Mill, he said that by censoring people, we are harming ourselves because the person we are censoring and depriving of liberty may be saying things that are or are in part true. And by not hearing them, we're harming not him, but ourselves. This is the whole point, isn't it? Absolutely. absolutely. We need to take into account all, all opinions. Now, some opinions we can look at, and they can be dismissed at a fairly early stage if they contradict some fundamental scientific principle or some fundamental ethical moral principle. Other opinions are going to take a little bit longer for us to analyse. But we have to hear these opinions in the first place so we know how to treat them and we know how to proceed. And uh, the, the wise man who forgets to listen to the fool can cease to become wise, which I think is another way of, 
um, saying what you've just said. So let, let, let's take these opinions. Let's get rid of this censorship. Let's take the opinions on board. Let's analyse them. And then let's come to some conclusions based on everyone's contribution, because it's, it's not just ordinary people that have been excluded from this conversation. It's, it's really people that know heck of a lot of what they're talking about. So I've talked to world experts around the world. So, for example, the fact that we're doing the injections in the, in the UK at the moment for vaccines, we're not doing it properly, in my view. We're sticking the needle in and we're not drawing back to make sure we're not in a blood vessel. Well, I've talked to world leading scientists around the world who actually say that this should be being done. This is not necessarily minority opinions. This is actual proper scientists, proper consultants, well-published scientists. And yet if it doesn't fit into a particular narrative, we're not really hearing what they say. And that is disappointing. We're missing out on one heck of a lot of good stuff by sticking so meticulously well, to, uh, a, to a single narrative. Yeah, especially when we can see from the WhatsApp messages uh, that the, many of these people are not exactly superstars intellectually, uh, and yet they're, uh, they, they constituted the prevailing orthodoxy. And uh, I've quoted John Stuart Mill, let me quote an even bigger reactionary, uh, uh, the, the great... Uh, English man of letters, Dr. Johnson, who said the grimmest dictatorship is the dictatorship of the prevailing orthodoxy. And we've lost out by having to bow to that prevailing orthodoxy, haven't we, Doctor? I think we have, and I couldn't agree with you more about, shall we say, the intellectual challenge of some of the people that are governing us. And, but it's, it's not necessarily a pure lack of intellect, although in certain cases, I suspect the lack of intellect is there. Uh, maybe people got there for other reasons other than their own uh, pure merit. But one of the things I've had a problem with for a long time is a lot of people in Parliament, for example, uh, tend to be professions, shall we say, other than doctors, nurses, pharmacists and, and scientists. I mean, I've never actually done a survey on this, but how many people in Parliament have actually got science degrees? How many people in Cabinet have got science degrees? Very, very few. Not many, really not many. Not many. You'd be lucky if it's 10%. I I, I think it probably wouldn't even be that. So while these people might be brilliant barristers, seems to be quite quite a popular profession, for example very good analytical skills, but you, you, need, you need some basic material to facilitate that analysis, and you need a basic understanding of science. So I've talked to brilliant people in different walks of life who actually understand some scientific principles at the most fundamental level or, or aspects of healthcare at the most fundamental level. So I think we need a much more eclectic group of people who are actually taking these decisions rather than people who are drawn from a fairly narrow uh, legal Oxbridge sort of uh, past tradition in favour of nurses, doctors, physiotherapists, people that have actually been at the coal face and got their hands dirty and smelt what it smells like to work in healthcare. So where does this story go from uh, here, Doctor? Uh, let me f- finally quote Shakespeare. Are we, are we steeped in blood so far uh, that... Uh, is it bloodier to go on or go our? Do we, do we double down? Do we keep on 
insisting that we were right, or is the way that we handled all these lockdowns going to be properly investigated in this uh, public inquiry? Yeah, I mean, can can you name some public inquiries that have uh, actually got to the core of the matter, have got to the core of the truth? I mean, if you think about the public inquiry into the Iraq war, I mean, dear me. You know, I, I just couldn't stand watching and it, it took, after a period of it time. It took 10 years. It took <laughs> 10 years. Yeah. And, and, and still no one's in prison <laughs> after no. all of that. No. Um, public inquiries... It's probably slightly better than nothing. You know, I really feel we're at a bit of a fork at the moment, George. I think it could go one of two ways. I think the way that media has been democratised to an extent, so, so you and me can go onto YouTube at the moment, we can make rumble videos, and that's actually getting quite a lot of fresh information out, which is great. If that can continue and we can have um, meritocratic presenters... Who, who can make a rational argument, who can get away from this BBC stereotypical uh, narrative, that way could bring us quite a lot of freedom. Joe Rogan, for example, has achieved it to quite a large extent. So that, that is, you might not agree with everything he said, but, but that's encouraging. So that's one possibility. Uh, the other is, is a little more darker, and that is that Governments carry on their, their collusion with, with uh, big tech, which we assume is there to a degree, and actually close things down even further. So I suspect in sort of five or ten years' time, things could be a lot better if we carry on with this democratisation of opinion and democratisation of news. But um, if certain vested interests are able to control different aspects of the media, especially the popular media that's available now, like, like, like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Rumble, all these things. If they can get control of those, then I think free speech is pretty well, um, well, certainly it will continue its downward trajectory. But if, we, if these things can be liberated and democratised and emancipated, uh, th- then the, the, the future of free speech is looking much more promising. I'm just really hoping it goes in that positive direction. Let a thousand flowers bloom, and let's pick the most fragrant. John Campbell, Absolutely, you George. are Absolutely. one of the most fragrant. Many thanks for joining us on the Mother Always of a pleasure, Talk George. Shows. Let's not leave it. Let's not leave it as long next time. Many thanks. Uh, EZD says, who do we complain to, Dr. John? What should we do to prevent this from happening again? Uh, very uh, pertinent. The numbers are phenomenal on the poll. Uh, 16,387 people have voted. Uh, you can vote for about another 15 minutes, I think. Make sure you've cast your vote. Which NATO leader was more responsible for the invasion of Iraq? I've got to tell you. George W. Bush is way, way ahead. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You are listening to the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. Some Patreon comments. Uh, Walter Willow says, George Bush is the dumbest person in U.S. history to have slept in the White House. I saw him with a press friend of mine while he was campaigning for the Republican nomination. Neither I nor my friend were very impressed. He could not pronounce some simple names, which I could, and I am an immigrant to the U.S., having learned English whilst there. And Paul Cormican says, lock the two of them up. Bush and Blair. Doris Wrench Eisler says, I say G. Bush was the big push in this. He prayed to God the night before, a different God from the one I sometimes appeal to, and his God said, go for it. Blair just wanted to bask in some reflected gory, I mean glory. And James Lenahan says, the U.S. calls the shots on war. I'm sure that's true. Deborah Larson says Bush was hell-bent on bringing Saddam down. He had a personal vendetta to fulfill and felt justified in creating this scenario and being the cause of thousands of innocent Iraqis' deaths. Peter Kelly says, You're a great source of news, not infected by the ideology of the rulers. Keep telling the truth and one day enough people will wake up. And Ray Greasy says, give him hell, George. I've been a fan for years. I've been to Dundee in the early 70s, visiting my wife's family. Wow, it's changed, Ray. For the better, I think, in some ways. Graham Briggs White says, I watch Moats every week. I never miss it. Where do I get the full Oxford Union videos? And what was the final vote? I don't know what the final vote was, except that I lost it. But you can get the full video on the Oxford Union site on YouTube. Let's take some calls. Elliot is in Florida. Go ahead, Elliot. Oh, thank you, George. Uh, actually, I'll call you Mr. Uh, Galloway. Uh, after seeing and watching the Oxford, uh, your Oxford tour de force, <laughs> it was amazing. Thank you. Um, thank you. Really amazing. And, uh, I had I had wanted to uh, question your your take on the um, uh, I think it was last Sunday you call, you talked about uh, the lab leak you questioned whether it was actually Wuhan and and, and or Fort Detrick and um, uh, I just want to get clear you believe there it was created in the lab is that true uh, I do I think I think uh, I don't know but I think that it was created at Fort Detrick and that it was taken to China at the military games, which took place quite near to Wuhan uh, in the weeks, maybe a couple of months, uh, before the first recorded case. That's my theory. Uh, I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. Uh, but I believe it's an American creation, yeah. Well, I'd like to I'd like to just point out a, a few things that we do know. We being, um, you know, the the general general knowledge that has been 
devised in the last couple of years that, that might uh, sway your opinion. It, it, in fact, it was Rand Paul that pointed out um, today. But let me first say that there is, this is complex because the, there, there are two U.S. agencies that just came out and pointed to Wuhan. And I know that that's part of the anti-China uh, belligerency that's starting. So I, I recognize that that's, that's there. And, and that there's, uh, whereas before they, they wanted to uh, have no mention of a lab leak at all. But, and, and there's, you know, so it's wrapped up in the anti-China stuff. But um, the, uh, Rand Paul pointed out that uh, there was um, a, a, uh, a grant proposal put forth in 2015 or 2017 uh, uh, by the um, uh, EcoHealth Alliance, and they put that grant into uh, the DARPA, the um, the Pentagon's uh, scientific uh, research wing, uh, and they describe the procedure for creating a SARS-CoV-2 virus by inserting the, this um, uh, this uh, cleavage point, and that the they would be doing the research in Wuhan under the auspices of the, the head of the lab there, the, the, I forget her name. And that woman had worked and, and studied on this, these procedures, these gain of function procedures in 2015 in North Carolina and produced a, a, they produced a, 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 you know, a peer reviewed um, article. Um, so there are all these, all of these things, the grant was actually the DARPA denied the grant, but it was taken up by the NIH by, Anthony Fauci, who illegally went around the law, the ban, and and funded the research starting in 2015 with EcoHealth Alliance through um, through the Wuhan lab, and then you have the fact that the the first case was in Wuhan. So it seems like the real scandal, from my perspective, is Anthony Fauci and the illegal grant and the EcoHealth Alliance and the uh, dangers of, of uh, gain of function um, so that the Chinese lab, I mean, that's just the, you know, the place where it happened. I don't see why uh, it should be denied. Well, I, I can't deny or confirm anything that you've said about it or about anyone uh, in that uh, very a powerful but potentially uh, entirely defamatory uh, telephone call. Uh, so I, I, you're blaming specific people. Uh, you're blaming uh, Fauci. I see that all the time. I know where that comes from. Uh, I'm just not qualified to say. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a scientist. And I wasn't there. So... Uh, my attitude is, as I said to Dr. Campbell, let a thousand flowers bloom. You have made your point of view very candidly clear. Let's hear other people's uh, points of view. That's the best service that I can be to you in this regard. Thank you, Elliot. In Florida, let's go north to Rob in Toronto. Go ahead, Rob. Hey, George. Thanks for taking my call again. I appreciate it. Welcome, mate. Comment would, um, it, it kind of ties in with your conversation with your prior guest really well. Uh, when I was listening to your ad last week, you know, the one where you talk about uh, bringing Moats America and Moats Germany. 
Uh, and then you yep. mentioned in the ad the alternative point of view. When I heard yeah. that last week, and again today, I had this kind of visceral gut reaction to it. And I know what you're what you mean by that. And you know the Moats audience knows what they mean by that because we're all informed citizens. We wouldn't be here if we weren't. However, I go back to yep. paraphrase the old George Carlin line, you know, consider how dumb the average person is and then consider that 50% more people are dumber than that. Um, this is what we're dealing with here. And I think that for the, the masses who don't necessarily follow uh, geopolitics, let's say, for one thing, you know, they're going to listen to whatever the mainstream media tells them. And for them, Anything that's alternative is wrong to them, and that's how they frame it. And then, therefore, that's how the rest of the world frames it. And that's where, you know, anytime you hear the alternative view, the automatic kind of reaction is, oh, okay, it's a crackpot view, it's a conspiracy theory, it's an extreme view, when really it's not. It's, let's call it what it is, it's fact-based commentary. And so I would just like to highlight that and throw it out to the people in the moats chat let's see if we can come up with a, a better name for fact-based commentary because um i i think that the connotation of an alternative view in in the way legacy media has framed it is is just going to be more of an uphill battle you know what i mean well, uh, it's a very powerful uh, point that you make. I don't overestimate the impact that we can make. Uh, we, we, we scored 981,000 viewers uh, this past seven days. Uh, even if that becomes a million next week, which I hope it will, uh, that still means the vast majority of the population of your country, of my country, of the United States, of the Anglosphere as a whole, is not hearing these alternative arguments. But it's 981,000 people more than if we weren't here. And it's a very great number more than when we started. Uh, I was, when I was doing the show on Rupert Murdoch's radio, had an audience of 30 to 40,000. And now it's 981,000. So the trend is good. I try to get experts on to give us their expertise, particularly the kind of experts that don't get a chance to show their expertise in the so-called mainstream media, as you call them, the legacy media, because their point of view their expertise takes them in a different direction to the prevailing orthodoxy. So we give them a platform here. I have a certain level of expertise uh, in some areas. In one or two areas, I'm very expert indeed. Very expert indeed. World class. But in other areas, I'm not at all expert. And I don't pretend to be. Uh, and I think that's the best honest approach to take. And then we have all these clever people 
out there like you, not just listening and watching, but phoning in and making us all think and question more. I think that's quite a good role for me to be playing at this stage in my life after 50 years in politics, and I intend to keep doing it as long as God gives me uh, breath. Um, and I, I, I believe that we're getting there. Uh, although there are a lot of dumb people, as George Carlin said, and I put it uh, usually, that um, you know, it only takes a few sheepdog, uh, dogs to gather up a lot of sheep, even onto the truck for their final journal. They go willingly enough. But there's more informed people now than there has ever been in my political lifetime. Because, you know, to an extent, ignorance is a choice now. Uh, you can find out the truth. You can discover that there are various versions of truth if you want to. You've got to want to. You've got to get through the thicket of uh, censorship and so on. But you can, if you want to, find out. And more and more people do want to find out. Thanks for that call, Rob. Uh, Jovan Kudra sends £20. Keep the good work going, Gigi. Do my best to spread the world. All the best and God bless. Thanks, Jovsky, very much indeed. And a handsome donation there. Uh, Rob Juno gives 6.99 Canadian dollars. How did Canada become a Bandarite nation? I, I, I scratch my head about Canada. I must say I simply don't understand how they've ended up uh, geopolitically in the place they are. James Anthony Ward sends 5 euros 99. Thank you, Gigi. You're a prince among men. Keep up the good work. We need you. Respect from Dublin. Thank you, James. Beautiful words. Let's hear from Barry in California. Go ahead, Barry. Thank you. Um, I have um, three issues to discuss very briefly in addition to Julian Assange, and I'll keep them to 30 seconds each because I have seen you cut off calls and go to another call. And I mean, no disrespect. Uh, I love you, man. And I just donated 10 U.S. dollars, as you like to say. So I wrote a thousand page Thanks, article Barry. in the last issue of the Northern California Peace Press. And to quote at the end of the article, the plan I've thought of, we need to discover the exact place and time of his extradition if it happens. And thousands need to surround Julian Assange and physically not allow the authorities to take him away. I have seen this done. I've been part of it and succeeded defying police at actions saving fellow organizers from detention. We must do everything we can to make sure that Julian Assange is free. And thank you for championing. The, the name of my article is The Plight of the World's Greatest Journalist, The Man's Action, and you can look it up on Peace Press online for the Sonoma County Peace and Justice Center. Should I go on to my second Wonderful. issue or should yes. you want to comment? No. Go on. Uh, no, of All course, right. I, agree. I agree with every word uh, that you said. Go ahead to the second one, Barry. Thank you. And these are all pertinent to things you've discussed. I just wrote, actually, back in December, a month or two before Cy Hirsch, I wrote an article on Nord Stream, 
of course, blaming it on the U.S., but also on Britain, which I got from Al Jazeera. And it seems like Seymour Hirsch didn't mention Britain, but at any rate, that I expect to be published on the same piece press March 1st. Third issue, I, I wrote a three-part um, uh, article in the piece press on the, from the Russian point of view uh, about the war in Ukraine. And I've basically, ever since the Vietnam War, I hate to say it, I've always wanted U.S. quote, enemies to win all of the wars that U.S. has started. So that's the April, May, the June, July, and the August, September 2022 issues of the Peace Press. The fourth... Okay, um, Barry. No, no, that's enough, Barry. Three's enough. Let's go to Bex Hill instead. Brian is there, wants to talk about the King's coronation, about which I was opining not a couple of hours ago. Go ahead, Brian. Well, I think that would be quite a wise thing, George, really. And we can see there's a whole lot of subjects that everybody's speaking about tonight. Um, But, you know, I think sometimes you have to put it all together. We've got King Charles, who who, he's not going to be marking, but, um, you know, a lot of changes are happening here. We've got King Charles thrown into the Koran. We've got depopulation, official narrative wrong, migrants in 350 hotels, fighting age. you know, a lot of things going on. One, one world religion, digital economy, one, one world government. Do you think that um, that possibly what's going on right now with this war could be Zionists that are all working for the great, the great reset, twenty thirty agenda, twenty thirty, as we are put in the Bible, seven year tribulation, book of Daniel, book of Revelation. Do you believe that? And do you believe if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved? Uh, I don't believe uh, in those uh, certainties that you adumbrated. Uh, I believe they are goals uh, of bad people, uh, and uh, it's up to us to contest them and try and stop them. There is nothing at all inevitable about the triumph of evil. Uh, And if we go around imagining that the triumph of evil is... Uh, certain, then we might as well not try to stop it at all. We might as well throw in our lot with the evil. Uh, I don't believe that at all. Uh, I love Jesus with uh, all my heart, and uh, I will uh, stay faithful to that as long as I live, and I hope on the judgment day uh, to get through the gates. But Even if I'm wrong about that, if there's no God and there's no judgment day and there's no other life, then I will have lost nothing by trying to live a good life and encourage other people to live a good life. Uh, I will have lost nothing at all uh, by doing that. I said earlier about James Bonds versus Austin Powers. I often think that, uh, with all respect to you, that people like you imagine that our enemies are James Bonds, that they're super smart, super competent, have got everything worked out, and by implication are inevitably going to win. I don't believe any of that at all. But thanks for the call, Brian. On the coronation, I made the point earlier uh, this evening that alas, alas, 
I will be out of the country for the king's coronation. But I detect very little to no enthusiasm in the country for King Charles's coronation, not least because in a country that is hard-pressed indeed, it's going to cost an absolute bloody fortune. Gino is in the Bronx. So we didn't get Robert in the Bronx. We got Gino in the Bronx, though. Let's hear from Gino. Go ahead, Gino. <laughs> Mr. Galloway, first of all, I want to thank God for putting a portion of himself in you, as well as giving, you, giving us free will, which you are choosing to express with courage, intelligence, humor, and vulnerability. Now, I, 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 you know, the guests you've had on recently, they're people that I've, I've drawn a lot from. Dr. Campbell, I've learned a lot from with the Jimmy Dore show. Dr. Campbell was right about what the package insert says on all these products for the, 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 the jabs is to aspirate. He's right. You have to stick the needle in and pull out. If you see blood, you don't put it in. You never see that on TV. Over here in, in uh, Dr. McCullough of Texas, one, he's the most cited doctor in the government of the United States here, 1,000 scientific papers. And Dr. Zelenko, they've been talking about this uh, for almost three years and treated thousands of people, which is why I left my job having listened to them and not mainstream media. Now, also, Dr. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. wrote a book called The Real Anthony Fauci, and here's a quote by Luc Montagnier, the Nobel Laureate. Dr. Joseph Goebbels wrote that a lie told once remains a lie, but a lie told a thousand times becomes the truth. Tragically for humanity, there are many, many untruths emanating from Fauci and his minions. RFK Jr. exposes the decades of lies. There's 2,500 scientific citations in Robert Kennedy's book, by the way, George. Uh, also, I believe yeah. he should run for president with Tulsi Gabbard as vice president, and there's a winning ticket of integrity and courage. Now, Mr. Galloway, I've only discovered you in the last two months, but there's a lot of synchronicities going on. Every time I wanted to call you, Robert called the last time, <laughs> so I couldn't get through to you. I want to say, I think you agree with me that the reason why the world has been in such a mess too often for too long is it's a spiritual problem. So it's a spiritual solution. And I'm curious if you know of a man that I discovered, I'm a couple years behind you. I discovered when I was 18, Edgar Casey. Do you know of him? No. He's no. the most documented seer this country ever produced. He was used uh, by Franklin mm -hmm. Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, Thomas Edison, Nicholas Tesla, Franklin Roosevelt and him to the White House. He predicted the Dead Sea Scrolls and what they'll say. He died in 1945 because he diagnosed people with his God-given abilities with no education. He could see through my body from Virginia Beach to, to, to the Bronx. He was the first 20 years diagnosing people given up by doctors. He is, to me, he brought me back to God in a believable way where people can actually experience God, not just hear words. And he... And, I don't think we have much time left, but I would have given a quick story of what happened when I was 21 years old after three years of meditating. I never did LSD, mushrooms, ayahuasca, never did that. May, may I just say two more minutes worth? Yes, 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 go on. <laughs> okay, thank you. So when I was 21, I went, I, I went up to a friend's upstate. I'd never been up in the woods longer than a day in my life. I was invited for a week. When I sensed that he, my friend and his girlfriend wanted to be intimate, I went for a walk. I took a book of poetry. I found a junior high school-sized football baseball field. I did my meditation. I started reading the poems out loud to strengthen my vocal cords for when I did meet somebody once a day, and otherwise my voice would get weak because I wasn't talking much. 
I'm I'm doing I'm I'm reading the poetry. A butterfly comes by this rectangular field, cut grass surrounded by trees. It came around. I looked up. I see it fluttering, glide. I look up again. I see it following the whole pattern of the grass. It landed 168 feet away. I know because I measured with my foot. 25 years later, and I heard a thought. Wouldn't it be beautiful if that butterfly could fly in my finger? <laughs> Another thought that said, "Don't be silly. You can't do that. That only happens in fairy tales." I put out my finger, I whistled, the butterfly starts coming towards me. I didn't even know you called a monarch. It's flying towards me 168 feet away. It lands on my right finger, my book of poetry is in the left hand, and I had an experience, a oneness moment. The Lord our God is one. My conscious, my subconscious bowed down to the superconscious, and I felt the Holy Spirit. And I realized, and I asked God a question in my head, not verbally. Is it true, was Jesus used to raise people from the dead physically, or was it from dead thoughts. And what about Elijah? What about this man, Edgar Casey? No education, no more than anybody who went to school. What about Paramahansa Yogananda, my favorite Indian, who taught Gandhi to meditate? What about the miracles in there? I got, <laughs> I got my answer, George. There is a God, and we can experience him, not just intellectualize, like Dr. Campbell was intimating. Knowledge alone is the, is the biting of the apple. It's the wisdom, how we use our knowledge, that will take us to a promised land within ourselves and outwardly. So if anybody can come across, if you can come across a book called An American Prophet written by Sidney Kirkpatrick 22 years ago about Edgar Casey, the 10th biography of him. I'll look Sydney up. Sidney only wrote about. I'll definitely, about, I'll definitely look up. Look, uh, Gino, uh, uh, that was amazing. Your description of the epiphany you experienced with the butterfly and the poetry book was uh, extremely moving. I wasn't sure where you were going with it, but it ended up uh, beautifully. And uh, I entirely concur uh, that this is a wonderful world that Louis Armstrong sang about. It is a wonderful world. And humanity has the capacity to be simply wonderful. One is astounded, always and often, at people's kindness, at their wisdom, at their humor, at their humanity, one meets with the human equivalents of that monarch butterfly all the time that restores your faith in humanity. And therefore, if you're a believer in God who made humanity. And uh, I think it's right to take a moment, as we have just done, to rest from the facts-based debate that we've had over this last two hours and have twice a week, and in my case, have all day and all night on all platforms, and to think about that butterfly. In Arabic, there's a, there's a word, subhanallah. Look at the glory that God made, subhanallah. And God likes that word, I believe, because it's a recognition, not just that God made it, but that it is truly beautiful. And that beauty comes in many forms. My wife uh, is thousands of miles away. Uh, I wanted to send her over social media a kind of love letter. I found it in the Pavarotti of Soul. Barry White, in his track, You See the Trouble with Me, is 
I can't do nothing without my baby. But I'm seeing her at the weekend again, God willing. It's been marvelous for me. I hope it was for you. I've not got time for any more, except to say 17,507 people voted in that poll on a Wednesday night. That's a big poll for a Wednesday night. And George W. Bush, I find you guilty as charged as the more responsible for the invasion of Iraq. And I sentence you hereby to the life imprisonment for the rest of your natural in a single cell with Tony Blair. I think you both deserve each other. Come back if you've enjoyed tonight's show on Sunday at the earlier time of 7 p.m. for the Sunday, the mothership, the mother of all talk shows. And please, don't make me read out 981,000 again. Please, give me a million next week. Good night.